I'm beginning a new uh, series this morning in the book of Matthew, and really this is just the beginning of a six-week series, but I'm going to begin teaching the book of Matthew over the course of the next year uh, with a break here and there. Uh, and this morning is just a series that, that will begin in the first couple chapters or, or some of the early chapters, chapter three and four, a five-week series on where the ministry of Jesus begins. And then in Christmas, which is not so far away, we'll back up and look at the first two chapters as we look at the birth narrative of Jesus. But let me say something like <clears throat> to all of us as we begin in earnest this morning here in the middle of October. I hope that you're... Um, getting something out of these, uh, you know, sermons that we do on Sunday, but I hope you you're, you're have an appetite to take it further, because that's what we really want to do. That's why our church is sort of organized to do that. Number of ways. Uh, on Sunday morning, you'll see in the opening of your bulletin, there's a class, How to Read Matthew. You can take advantage of that class over the next many weeks if you'd like to. It's just a, a sort of a Bible study methods class through the book of Matthew. There is Monday nights, uh, the women's gathering uh, teaching uh, Bible study every Monday night here at 7 o'clock is going through the same series of studies in the book of Matthew. I'm leading a study beginning on Thursday, or it last began last Thursday morning. Uh, crisp one hour, 6.30 on Thursdays for guys. You're all welcome to come take a part of that. I'm going to start a video blog this uh, very soon and looking at some key questions about uh, the book of Matthew. It's a very comprehensive book. Probably every issue you can think of is touched on this book and so we'll be sharing that. And then our small group guides, if you're in a small group or would like to be in one or even do it yourself on your own as you're walking out of the... Uh, auditorium this morning. Take one with you. Take the study and go a little bit further. Make more out of uh, this half an hour this morning. Now, what, a couple things by way of introduction. Matthew's gospel, his first book in the, in the New Testament, one of the four gospels, is one of the most comprehensive of the gospels uh, of the four. It's the most comprehensive, one of the most comprehensive books in the New Testament. It's the richest in the actual, in the teachings of Jesus, right? The actual discourses of Jesus. It has the most material. Of course, the Sermon on the Mount, the largest block of teaching of Jesus. We'll look at it in January. It's also, as you would guess and know by its placement, it's a bridge between the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament. In the new book of Matthew alone, there are 54 citations, we'll look at one today, of the Old Testament in the New. It's trying to help you put things together, trying to make sense of the narrative or the grand story of the Bible. There are 262 additional allusions to the Old Testament, to those other 54 citations. And the subject, you might say that emerges, if you read the whole 28 chapters in a setting, would be Jesus' most talked about uh, topic, which is the kingdom of God, right? What is the kingdom of God? Matthew talks about it more than any others. But another way to look at Matthew, which is perhaps per, for my purposes or our purposes, is some would say it's kind of a manual of sorts on discipleship or what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What is it actually like? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? How do you do it? And what does it look like? And I, that's one of the reasons I want to choose it. And this morning, I'm just going to begin by way of introduction, a, a six-week series just on two chapters, chapters three and four. If you have a Bible, you can open up on Matthew's gospel where it's not the baby Jesus, but the introduction 
of the ministry and person of Jesus. And this message is titled, A New Life. A New Life. First sermon, really, in the New Testament. Read with me Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 3, beginning in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, quote, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But, circle that word, when, they, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, religious leaders, coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, obviously speaking of Jesus, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, the Old Testament... Many of, some of you would get this or know this, you've, you've heard this before. You know, between the last words of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, that's the last book, and the first words of the New Testament, some of which we're reading now, the book of Matthew, there is roughly 400 years of quiet from God. You know, the, uh, Bible uh, scholars and theologians call it the silent years, okay? Where God, what it means by silent years, there's no prophets, right? There was all these prophets in the Old Testament, right? Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the minor prophets, you know, Amos and Micah and Malachi and Zechariah, and, and they were sent to the people of God to wake them up, to give them a message, to call them back to God. But after Malachi, for 400 years, there was silence. Now you think about that for a minute, right? This country is what, 240, 50 years old almost? It's almost twice that. Think about it. And when you think about it, no word from God. And at the end of the Old Testament, although there was the rebirth with Nehemiah and Ezra and, and, and Esther, and there was a rebuilding of the temple, it was sort of like a, you know, the glory days to the very, very modest glory days. And, but by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, in a manner of speaking, it was, um, it was a very discouraging time. The mood, if you read the last book of the Old Testament as an example, was a very discouraging one. People had stopped showing up for church. They'd stopped giving to the church. They had stopped worshiping. They'd pretty much uh, given up on this, the Old Testament, as the Word of God. And it was, if there was no New Testament and you were a journalist, you know, in the last hundred or years or so prior to the birth of Jesus, you'd say, you know, you'd write the obituary of the people of God. But the last two verses, the last two verses 
of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, make a promise. And he says, the day is coming, doesn't say when, when I'm going to send forth a prophet. I'm going to send Elijah, right? Who's been dead by then for a long time. But the prophet says, I'm going to send forth Elijah. He's going to come back into the world and he's going to call people back to God. And this moment that we just read is that moment. And Jesus would say himself, We'll look at it next spring. In Matthew chapter 11, he said, listen, if who, he who has ears to hear, who's open to the coming of God, he says, this guy, John the Baptist, he is Elijah. And what you see, even, even the way he's described, right? He's a voice of one crying in the wilderness, but it even says here, John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a, a leather belt around him. He's supposed to look and act like Elijah. That's who he is, okay? But John's message, very Elijah-like, it really boils down to one word. There's a whole sentence in verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. But if you want to boil John's message down to one word, and we'll look at this in a couple of weeks. It's the very same sermon that Jesus gives, okay, word for word, is the word repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, right? The opening sermon of the New Testament is a sermon on repentance. But here's the funny thing about it, or not so funny thing, interesting thing about it. The word repent, the idea of repentance is one of the most important ideas to understand and to appreciate in the Christian life, in the Christian experience. It's the, it's the, it's the center of it. It's the, it's the oil in the gears, right? It's one of the most important things to understand if you or I want to truly appreciate, experience the Christian life. But it is also one of the most misunderstood words and ideas. The word repent does not mean what some of us first think it means. Change your life, right? Repent. Change your life. That's what we think it means. And many people, maybe not some of you, maybe some of you, have come to a church or come to a place in their life, maybe in through the scriptures, maybe through people who give sermons like me, and said, you know what? I got it. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to stop these various behaviors and ideas and attitudes, and I'm going to go from this way, I'm going to go to this way. And they do it, and it may last a week, it may last a month, it may last a year. But eventually it stops working. Because the truth is you cannot change your life when it comes to the most... I'm talking, I'm not talking about your hairstyle or your diet. I'm talking about the operating center of your life. You can no more change your life than you have the power or the ability to, to, to manage or change the weather, right? You can't do it. You can turn over a new leaf. You can make a new start. But you cannot change the human heart. That's what we're talking about. You are powerless. This is what the Bible says, to do that. I am powerless to do that. It's not possible. This is the fundamental difference, by the way, between self-help, if you read self-help books, and even some forms of religion and what it means to have a real relationship with God. You cannot fundamentally change your life, but you can change your mind about who's in charge of your life. And that's really what we're talking about. This call, repent, right? Turn around. Maybe that's a paraphrase. You're going in the wrong direction for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is a call to surrender the con what's controlling your life, right? 
It's the operating center, which for most of us is either our pride or our fear, right? That's what repentance is. It's a call to surrender what's really controlling your life, your pride or your fear, and to open your life up to God. But there's the interesting thing about walking with God. In, in many ways, walking with God is, is an irony, right? I'm an, I was an English major, so go with me. But you know what the word irony, most of you know what it means. It, it means that, you know, what is said is almost the opposite of what is meant, right? It's the sense of so much of life is ironic. You know, walking with God is ironic because the idea of repentance, my first point is this. This is what John is saying. We are free from our sin only when we face it. See, what, what most of us do, it's human nature. I do this. You do this. When anyone's calling me on something, even if it's my own self-examination, I want to deny. It's not even true. Sometimes before the words even come out of my mouth, I'm denying that some issue in my life is even true. I'm denying my sin. I'm explaining it away. I'm going to explain away. I'm going to justify the, the sin in my life. But here's what the Bible tells us. Here's what John's saying. Here's how the New Testament opens. It's only in admitting, right, your sin, facing it, that you're helped. Why is that true? That you're only in admitting your sin or facing it that you're helped. Because it's the very place, repent, for the kingdom of God is coming. It's the very place where God's power goes to work in your life, okay? Let me tell you something. Uh, uh, as much as God loves you and me, as much as he's done for you and me, he does not put a rope around anybody's neck. The whole Christian life from beginning then is an invitation. Come, pick up, come follow me. Come pick up your cross and follow me. God does not commandeer anybody. It's an invitation, right? It's an invitation. But you have to be willing. We are free from our sin only only when we are willing to face it, right? It's the only place where God does his work. That's what John's saying. It's a voice of uncrying into the wilderness. Prepare a way for the Lord. He's coming. Make a path for him in your heart. Make a path for him in your life and allow him to change your life. You know, this is, the Bible opens, this is the opening sermon. The other stuff is the, the um, birth narratives. We'll look at them at Christmas, but it opens with a sermon that is really, you could say, a fire and brimstone sermon. Have you heard that term somewhere in your life? Okay. Anyone? Yeah, okay. There you go. Fire and brimstone. Now, three times actually in this passage, verses 10, 11, and 12, the word fire is used, which often means judgment. I mean, generation, when's the last time you heard someone say, you brood of vipers, you know? I mean, this is maybe defines what we call a fire and brimstone sermon. But let me say something before we skip over it too quickly, Right? This isn't just a history. John's, Matthew's writing this gospel decades after these events. He's writing it for a practical purpose. He's trying to encourage his church. So if the Bible opens with a fire and brimstone sermon in a manner of speaking, it must mean although the audience is unique, right? These religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these self-satisfied, you know, sort of self-secure, maybe even self-righteous leaders, but there has to be something here for us as well, I think, right? But let me say something about John and Jesus, okay, by way of introduction. John the Baptist, the, Jesus says this in Matthew 11 about John the Baptist. He says, the law and the prophets, they prophesied until John. 
then comes Jesus. In other words, John represented in some ways the law of God, all 39 books, the law of God. Moses was given, uh, through the law came uh, uh, Moses, and, and, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. They come together, but they work together. Well, let me say something about the law, where John is calling these folks out. The law is powerless to change your life. Back to what I was saying before, right? I mean, you, you can, and I, I encourage you to, to meditate and memorize uh, the Word of God and to, and to study it, right? But the laws of God are powerless to change your life, right? They can't change your life by themselves. And for people who, who, who think that they can, right? They, the, the word Pharisee and Sadducee has become a shorthand in our day for people who are self-righteous, who have all the answers but don't have any of the power, okay? The law is powerless to change your life, but, but, here's why John is important. It's the only way you really know what's wrong with you, okay? See, the problem with many of us where we don't grow, we don't change, we don't say, um, you know, we don't open our lives to the power of God coming our way, prepare a, a, a highway for your God, here comes the kingdom, is we don't know what our problems are. We don't know what our sore spots are. We don't know what our sins are because we're avoiding them, that we're denying them. We're letting pride and fear control our lives and we're not really dealing with the honest issues in our lives, right? That's what John is saying. That's what repentance means. We're powerless. It's like Jesus or, or the, the book of um, James, the, 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 the New Testament writer, he says this, he says, you know, we, we, we have a very casual relationship with the truth. He said, many of us, we, he says, don't deceive yourselves. Here's how you, he says, we're, we're deceive ourselves because we, we hear the word of God, but it goes in one ear and out the other. We listen to it, but we don't do what it says. And he says, we are like, people who are like that, they're like a man or a woman who looks into a mirror, James chapter 1. And it says, they have a very quick glance of who they are, but they don't really take a hard look at who they are, so they walk away and they forget what manner of man or woman they are, right? It's like you go off into the day and you realize, you know, I, I forgot to shave this part of my face, or, you know, I got circles under my eyes, or, or I got coffee stain on my shirt. That kind of, John, or that's what James is saying. We, we have a very quick, casual relationship with the truth, and we walk out into the world, and we don't know what manner of people we are, so we don't know where our problems are, so we don't know where to invite God to do a change in our life, but he says he or he, the man or the woman who looks intently into God's word, okay, he or she has an, has an accurate understanding of who they are. And they will be blessed in what they do because they can come to the power of God. They can, they can focus the laser. They can focus the, uh, the scope and say, God, this is where I need you. I'm preparing, uh, I'm preparing this area in my life as a highway for the power of God to come through. That's what we're talking about. I had the opportunity um, just this week to visit a young man who um, was in a, hor from, I know from this church, who was in a very serious high-speed car accident. Uh, and he was thrown from the vehicle and he's in the hospital. And I went to see him and he has, he um, you know, uh, injured his spine and it was so tender that they said, we can't do surgery because we'll, we'll we have high risk of, of cutting your spinal cord. So um, we are going to put a halo. Anyone see, ever seen a halo? He, he has a halo, which is um, this, you know, framework of metal and wire that goes above his head all the way onto his shoulder. It's screwed into his forehead and into the bones in his neck. And the doctor said, the good news is, is we think 
you will actually not have permanent damage in the long run. But for the next three to six months, you have to wear this and you can hardly move for the next three to six months, right? He's got this contraption screwed into his body. Can't take it off. In a manner of spiritually speaking, guys, that's you and that's me, right? Do you believe that? When it comes to really trying to change the fundamental operating system of your life, you are absolutely powerless. You don't need a hand up. You don't need a, a, a boost. You are absolutely powerless. This is what the New Testament says. And if you really want to see change in your life, repentance is not the front door. Repentance is the only door, right? Martin Luther started the Reformation. Some of you know this. And uh, against the self-satisfied, you might say, self-secure um, religion of his day that seemed to have lost its heart. And he took this document called the, you know, these 95 um, articles or theses or just simple one-line truths and he nailed them to a door in uh, the church in Wittenberg where he served. And the very first one, which is an umbrella for all of them, was about repentance. It said this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, was his opening sermon too in the next chapter, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance, right? He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance, right? This is what John is saying. It's what I am saying. You want to experience change? Repent for the kingdom of God is here. It's not a one-time experience. It's a way of life. My second point in this brief message. First, we're free from sin only when we face it. Two, our greatest enemy is not the evil in others, but the unaddressed evil within ourselves. Now, this seems like a negative sermon. It's going to get better in a minute, I hope. But let me, let me say this. The cure is only as good as the depth of the diagnosis, right? That's what John is getting at, right? It's been silent for 400 years, and in those 400 years, people have grown, we talked about this a few weeks ago, kind of a layer of, of um, skin around their hearts, right? And we have to understand that the real enemy is not, you know, in Washington, D.C. The real enemy is not, you know, uh, the people around us, our neighbors, even our spouses, the real enemy, our biggest challenge is within ourselves. But so what's so interesting about this opening sermon? There's these two groups of people. John comes out. He's this prophet, right? Looks a lot like a prophet from the Old Testament. He, he looks a lot like Elijah. He's sort of this throwback of the Old Testament prophet. And he comes out and he's preaching repentance. It says the people, verse 5, went out to him from all over Jerusalem, Judea, the whole region. I mean, this guy's a, in a manner of speaking. He's a, he's, a, he's a religious rock star. People are coming out of the woodwork and they're hearing him. They're confessing their sin and they're baptized. That is, they're making a commitment of repentance to uh, respond to his message. It's amazing. But there's a contrast, verse 7. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, okay, the religious establishment, they were not coming to be baptized. They were mainly coming to be critical, which brings about John's strong words, you generation of vipers. But here's what's interesting. Why does Matthew put this here? 
right? Matthew chooses to open his gospel. Jesus will say the same words in, in the next chapter. It's because I think this message, right? Wake up. Turn your life around. You're, don't, don't be satisfied in what you, 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 you think you're okay. You think you're in a good place. You know, we have Abraham as our father. I've been coming to church a long time. Wake up, right? Matthew puts this message here because I think he's trying to wake us, the church up, right? It's not just a history lesson. But the people that you would think would be, would, would first get the message. You might say the church people, the people who went to Sunday school. The, you'd think the early, the, the people who would be the early adopters would be the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? I mean, these are the guys, the ladies who, who, who grew up in the church. That's what it means, Pharisees. They were, they were students of the Old Testament, Right? But yet they were not the early adopters. They were not the first in line. In fact, they were criticizing Jesus and John. Why is that, right? He, he mentions it. Do not think to yourselves, right? He's kind of, he knows where they're coming from. To say, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, they'd grown deaf to the message, right? Are you deaf to the message? Am I deaf to the message? You say to yourselves, I'm okay, I'm already in. I'm good, right? Repentance and baptism, that's for the new people. The people whose lives are a mess. The people who haven't been church in a Let's show a nice video about that broken person or that, you know, person strung out on drugs or whatever the case may be. But John says, listen, no, it's about you. It's about me. The opening sermon of the New Testament is an indictment on self-secure religion. And what John wants to say is, I'm going to tell you what repentance and baptism is for. It's for the people who are honestly insecure about their relationship with God, right? Repent and, hear, and turn your life over to God. He says, produce fruit, a word used twice in this passage, in keeping with repentance, right? What does that mean? What does fruit mean? It means, has there been, ask yourself this question, a change in your fundamental attitudes over the course of the last month or six months or six years. A true change in your behavior. A true change in your ability to be obedient to the things that God is calling you to do. Why is Matthew writing this? Why is this his opening sermon? My guess is because in his challenge to be a leader in the church, the book ends with the Great Commission, right? He knows one of the greatest blocks in reaching the unreached is the unchanged lives of those who follow Jesus, right? That's really what makes, wakes, that's really the, 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 um, the ultimate apologetic, right? Is not the music we play. It's not the sermons we give. It's the lives that we live, okay? That's the ultimate apologetic. Is there been fruit in your life lately? Has there been fruit in my life? Like true transformation of character. True change in my ability to deal with issues and self-control. A true growth in compassion for people who are hurting and who are lost around us. Perhaps a day, today is a day for some of us. Right? This is our introduction to this series. To repent. Right? You say, I already did that, Pastor, years ago. No, it's not the front door. It's the only door. Right? It's the only door. And to confess and reopen our lives to God. Lastly, only Jesus, this is where John's leading, can give your heart what it truly desires. Right? He's very honest about it. He says, listen, 
I'm just, I, I, I'm, I'm going to give you a baptism. Of, I baptize you with water for repentance. I, it, what I'm doing here, he's saying, listen, I'm encouraging you to change your mind. That's all I'm doing. I'm saying, I can't change your life. I can't change your heart. I can't change your direction. What I'm encouraging you to do, though, is, right? I can't even, I can't even tie the shoes of the guy coming next to me. I can't, I'm not worthy to touch his shoes. In a manner of speaking, the law is powerless to your problem and to my problem right? But he's saying, listen, the person coming, he's the only one who can give you what you truly desire, right? God wants nothing more than the very best for you. God wants your life to count. He wants your life to be one of influence. He wants you to make a difference. He wants you to have a, make your life, my life, to have a lasting difference in eternity. That's what it means to produce good fruit. And not only that, right? Verse 11 or verse 10. He wants to help you with a transformative power, right? He, I baptize you with water, but he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. A transformative power, right? That can be focused. They talk about, you know, cancer treatment that's focused, you know, that's, that's targeted. That God wants to target the power of the Spirit into those areas of your life where you need to turn around. That's what he's saying. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit where you can have true transformation of character, where you can have grow truly in wisdom and in power, right? But it only happens through a life of repentance, right? Repentance is a way of life. And what I think the Bible opens with here, right? This sermon that we just read, just these 12 verses. There's an urgency here that frankly I don't see in many, uh, uh, in my life often and in the life of the church, right? There's an urgency. We've lost an urgency for God to do something in our life. And Jesus, John is pointing, this is sort of an introduction, to the one who's coming. He's saying, listen, it's not about me. I have a role to play. The law is the only way you're going to understand what your real problems are, right? Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. You're never going to know what your problems are until you open your life up to the mirror of God's word. But then you need the power of the Holy Spirit. You need the promised one. But here's the interesting thing about that. There's an, John, before Jesus steps onto the, to the stage here in the 13th verse, he gives you two images. It's by way of preparation. Who is Jesus? Who's the guy he's introducing? The two images, one is an image of a guy with an axe who's swinging it at the base of a tree. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And the last image, verse 12 Speaking of Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit is a guy with a winnowing fork in his hand, right? You know, that's an old way of doing things, but they would take the wheat and they would take like a pitchfork and they would throw it up and there would be wind would blow away the chaff and eventually they'd have the wheat, right? He said, listen, this is who Jesus is, right? He's got a, he's a guy with an ax in his hand and he's a guy with a winnowing fork. And it is a he, he comes with a message of love, but also a message of judgment. Now, why is that? I'll tell you why it is. Because God loves you too much to let you waste your life, right? When he says repent for the kingdom of God is, is coming, he doesn't say when you and I made a decision to turn our life over to God, that God wakes up and he starts coming our way, right? It's like we initiate God's actions. Now, listen, he said the train has left the station, and it's coming full blast. He says, wake up, 
Repent. Turn your life around because the train is coming full blast your way. And God wants your life to produce fruit. God wants my life to produce fruit. He wants you to grow in character and in influence and purpose. And he has the power to do it. But if you want to run your own life, if you want to have a comfortable, you know, check the box kind of Christian faith, well then be careful because God cares too much about your life. And here comes the axe and here comes the winnowing fork. Okay? That's what he's saying. This is who Jesus is at the opening of the New Testament. God's judgment, by the way, is not a contradiction of his love. You might think that. It actually proves God's love. Just like a good parent. Because God loves you too much to see you waste your life. So my opening encouragement to you, to me, as we look at this book is, you know, wake up, right? Whether you're brand new and you're just visiting a church service or you've been a Christian here for a long time. Maybe you're one of the men and women who's standing on this platform. Maybe you're this one. Wake up. Turn your life around. Because here comes the kingdom of God. Repentance is a way of life, right? So, last verse, and I want to have a little time of prayer and we're done. What's the application of this message? Is to do exactly what the smart people in this passage did. Not become self-satisfied and I don't need this, who said, who confessed their sins, right? Proverbs 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. But the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy, right? This is something you and I are encouraged to do every single day of our lives, right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's not a once in a lifetime experience. That's a way of life. That's a way of life. So I want to have our elders come back up here at the base of this platform. And they're here when we close the service in just a minute. If you're interested in having prayer, right, private, after everyone's sort of heading out, they're here as they did last service. Give them an opportunity to pray for you, right? You don't have to tell them a story. Just tell them your first name, maybe. And allow them to pray for you this morning right? Allow God to use them as our anointed leaders. But in the moment before we close the service, this is what I want us all to do, everyone, before you walk out of here, is to take just a minute in this service, right? Let's transact some business with God, right where you sit in the privacy of your own heart and where you sit in the privacy of your own seat, just use a minute, just literally, I'll watch my watch. And use this as an opportunity. If God is speaking to you in any way, right? Where you say, I, this is where I need to turn my life around. Here's an area where I've been holding on. Here's an area where pride or fear have been controlling. I'm going to surrender this pride. I'm going to surrender this fear. I'm going to confess this sin. I'm going to do it right here, right now. I'm going to ask God to say, come into my life. Send the kingdom of God right here. I'm turning my life over to you. Confess that sin. If it's husband and wife, friend, you want to pray quietly together, do that in just one minute. And then I'm going to close this all in prayer. Let's pray together. Use the time.
God and Father, we come to you humbly before you in this place. And we believe, Lord, that heaven and earth meet uh, where Jesus is, where the Holy Spirit is present. We believe that you are here in this room, uh, in our, even in our hearts. And I pray that you would hear these prayers. You would hear, Lord, uh, uh, these confessions, these struggles, Lord. The Bible says that you take pleasure in the prayers of your people. Lord, uh, one of the great delights, one of your great delights is to hear um, from the men and women, the young and the old, the people, your people, who call you Lord and Savior, to hear their concerns, to, Lord, um, to forgive their sins and to heal. So I pray, Lord, that you would hear every prayer in this room, that you would respond as your word promises, and that you would give a sense of peace that's deep and lasting. And, um, and, uh, and, and, and we just thank you and we love you. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand more confidently, more accurately, what it really means to walk with God. That we can only deal with our sin when we face it. When we're willing to come before you with um, just open hands and invite you to be the center of our lives. Not only to forgive our sin, but to be our Lord. To be our Lord. We thank you, we praise you, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as a congregation, you are dismissed, but if God's encouraging you, many came forward last hour, right? There's lots of time. It's 11.36, okay? Take advantage of these leaders and allow them to say a word of prayer over you. Amen?